Thank you, both of you. It's great. So I'm going to step off on a limb here and say that um, that you two have probably been following Jesus longer than most of the rest of the people in this room. Well, Floyd's very old. <laughs> I'm very old. But I think I'm young, so I don't know yes, what, do. how that works. Wow. So why don't you just share with us a little bit, um, as you look back on that journey, you know, is there just uh, one or two things that, that you would like to just share with us, um, little reminders, little nuggets that you, that you want to throw at us as we um, look down a path that, that you're a little bit farther down, at least I'm speaking for myself. Give us the goods. I'm, I'm, uh, I got one here. I think the thing that, that helped me the most in the journey were a couple of people in my life, people that I say left their fingerprints on my soul. Um, I had a father-in-law when my parents' own marriage came apart. Had a, I was just getting married. I had a father-in-law who moved in and walked beside me. His name was Roy Blakely. And at his memorial service, someone described him like an elephant, that he would come in and stand beside you and very gently start leaning. <laughs> and you thought you were sort of in the same place, but pretty soon you were like a degree over going that way, and you didn't even know you were doing that. And when somebody said, how did he think about discipleship? And uh, they said his philosophy of helping people follow Jesus was make a friend, take him with you. And I had met him when I was 10 years old at a kid's camp. And I responded to him because he talked to us like we were real people. And eight years later, I walked onto a college campus and met a tall, sandy-haired, green-eyed girl by the name of Ruth that turned out to be Roy's eldest daughter. He had been a ventriloquist in this camp, and he had a dummy. I thought all he had was Jimmy, the dummy. I didn't know he had any daughters. And, uh, and, and that... But his, in, his fingerprints on my soul and how I look at life and people in Jesus may be one of the top two or three profound things in my experience. I was going to say the same thing. I went uh, on my journey from seeing people as objects to be one through getting them to pray a prayer and make a decision to seeing them subjects who are on the same journey. But I wish that I could take back some years that um, I treated people in the wrong way. There was a guy living with us in the house in Afghanistan. My wife and I lived there for three years. And we opened our, our home to backpackers and young people traveling the world, world travelers. One guy said to me one day, he said, you know, I'm at the place now where I really like Jesus, but man, I, I really don't like you, so I'm moving on. <laughs> and you know, it, I, I think I was not so much called to those young people, but they were called by God to me to help me reorient my world to love people. I mean, I'm passionate about people coming to know Jesus and experience him because he's so awesome. But that, that's changed how I, I see people, um, including people who are not yet following Jesus. I see them as on a journey, and I don't see evangelism as selling Jesus as a product, but just being happy about Jesus with them and somehow hoping that I can rub off into their life. I, I'm very intentional about that. 
But I think of it as blessing people, not selling something to people. So that's, that's been something that has been a huge part of my change. I have a question for Floyd. Oh, please. Can I do that? By the way, can I just say something? They haven't, this is the first time you've seen each other in 40 years? About 40 years. Is this is it, incredible. Is it that long? Yeah. Yeah, you guys need to be better at like following up. Yeah, well. Like, yeah, like. <laughs> <laughs> I've just talked to Jesus, said, you know where Floyd is? He says, no. I, no, no. I, no. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I first met Floyd when they were in Amsterdam and we were pastoring this church at the University of Illinois and he came and our kids were small and they called him Floyd McGiant. <laughs> and, and at that time he was in Amsterdam and, and those of you who remember the 60s and 70s, young people would go get dope in Amsterdam and follow the hippie trail down through Iran and over into Kabul and down to Delhi and die in junkie hotels of heroin overdoses. And Time Magazine did an article about him it, when, when they had a tea house in Kabul just off a place called Chicken Street, if I have it. Do I have that right? And, and they called him the seven-foot giant of the hippie trail. And, you know, our kids still remember him. And, and now they're in their 40s, but they still remember that. I've, my, my question of you is this. You've been married to Sally how long? Uh, 47 years. 47 years. How has she shaped your life and how you see Jesus? Oh, wow. Uh, we got married very young. I was 21 and Sally was 18. And uh, I had been given some wrong impressions about what marriage was like. And the man was over the wife. In fact, somebody had said to Sally, uh, a lady, um, that she was going to pray for Sally because she and her husband, who had been married 14 years at the time, had never had an argument in 14 years. And she prayed that Sally and I would never have an argument. Which I think she was lying, of course, but or that is living in some kind of la-la land. But, you know, Sally and I, um, we were so different. She was extremely courageous. She had been going off uh, on short-term outreaches at, at 15 and 16 years of age from Texas around the world and had such a heart for God. But her personality and my personality was so different. And I spiritualized the difference. I thought if you had maturity, you, you would have a personality like mine. And... Uh, lightning's gonna hit I don't want to be here no this is a confession I'm not not bragging I'm confessing (laughs) Um, she's very practical she's very concrete she's extremely principled very discerning her communication process is to work through through things very detailed and step by step a whole process I'm very Visionary, thinking big pictures, very bottom line. You know, I'll come home and Sally will say, how was it? And I'll kind of like, it's like newspapers. I'm the headline, you know, it was fantastic. And she'll want to know, I've had to learn that if I communicate to Sally the way she appreciates communication, I have to say, well, I met Dick and, you know, Dick had a checkered shirt on and he told this amazing story. And I, if I tell her the details, that touches her heart. I was praying one day uh, after we'd been married several years and I prayed, uh, and this is again a confession. I'm not proud of this, but this is where I was. I said, Lord, please, please forgive me. I think I've made a mistake. I've married the wrong person. She's not a woman of vision and faith like me. Please change her to be more like me, I pray in Jesus' name. 
What? Why, is... why would you want to be married to yourself? <laughs> Excuse me, go ahead. <laughs> so this is what I heard back yes. from the Lord, right? It was like the prayer bounced up and bounced back down. And then I heard this phrase, buy her the carpet she wants. <laughs> That's fabulous. Well, anyway, I have come... <laughs> <laughs> I have come to appreciate the amazing gift my wife is to me. She's my best friend, and uh, she has taught me to be more thoughtful and to be more thorough and to be more principled. She's extremely discerning, um, and she's taught me to appreciate that um, there are many different kinds of personalities, and all of them are a reflection of God and to really uh, value people who are different from me. And that has been one of her greatest gifts to me, besides being my best friend. Mm. Mm. Thank you, that was a great question. Yeah. Can Even you... though you exposed all my sins. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just flip the table. So what would you like to know? You, I'm just gonna let you guys catch up. It's been 40 years, and we're just all gonna like sit in. <laughs> this is like really good. Well, I, I think I'm married to Sally's sister, apparently. <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm a verbal person. Ruth is quiet. Um, I, I like this big stuff, and she likes gardening. I say, why do you like gardening? She says, when I get my hands in the dirt, it is elemental. I'm connected to God. And I'm saying, well, I prefer to connect a different way than that. But um, she's a quilter. She, she's making quilts for the grandchildren now. So she's got three made, and she has eight to go. And uh, she has taught me about family. My family came apart at certain points. I didn't know my grandparents very well. And at three and a half years old, I was on a ship with my parents going to India, and she was on a farm in Modesto, California, with her grandparents right across the orchard. So her view of the world, you know, my view of the world comes through freighters, and hers comes through peaches. You know, it's that. It's that distinct. But she has taught me about family. And that if we talk about loving our neighbors, you start with the closest one. Talk about the art of neighboring. Mm. It's, it's that place. And has, she continues to teach me about that. One of the things she does, uh, well, first of all, let me, let me just give this little snippet. I was president of the small college. I'm a young guy. I'm in my late 30s. I think I'm sort of hot shot and so forth. But the college has all kinds of financial difficulties. I walk into the house one day and there are toys all over the front room floor. And we have four kids under the age of 12. And I say, Ruth, how come there are always, keyword, how come there are always toys on the front room floor? <laughs> well, if you got four kids under 12, you're going to have toys on the front room floor. And she didn't say anything. She just grinned at me and looked at the kids and smiled very sweetly. said, kids, you better get the toys picked up. The president's home. <laughs> I, now, see, see so, some people would see that as sarcasm. <laughs> and I'm just skewered. I'm like this. And I, I chose to see it as Jehovah's nudge. You know, that, but... but she, she thinks detail-wise about the grandchildren, so when she's with them, she started this years ago, whenever she's with them, she comes home and writes on the computer what they did together, and if she has pictures, she puts it in there. And so twice now that has happened, when they graduated from high school, they get a book from Grandma that's Grandma's journal of their 18 years with her. 
that would, that would make me crazy. And I just encourage her saying, oh, you need to do that. That's good. <laughs> you know? but, but see, that's not, that's not like Jesus going, bam. That's Jesus hanging out. And I think for, for me, she has added so much to my life, just like you're saying about Sally, that I, there is a sense in which when you marry, if you are one, or as you are one, you follow him together. You still stand before him individually on that day, and all, but there's something about that that is profound. And I think probably Ruth is my best teacher. Mm. Maybe I could ask you a question, just kind of um, jump a little bit. Dick, I know you and Ruth spent quite a few years in Washington, D.C., uh, behind the scenes, making friends with people in our government and, and um, wherever else. That's all I know. I would love just to hear a little bit from your journey, what happened in Washington, D.C., anything you feel free to share with us. I'd, I feel like I've missed that part of your life, and I'd love to catch up a little bit with it. I, I can say some things without names, just by virtue of it. First of all, being a kid raised in East Oakland, California, not poor, but certainly lower middle class, to end up in the halls of power uh, is just crazy. I, I mean, I, for, for most of my first 25 years, I was a stutterer. And so to be a stutterer, not a Yaley graduate or not have wealth or anything, to end up walking in the halls of power, it just shows God's great sense of humor. Mm. And... Um, I remember one of the first days I was going to meet with a senator, and I'm sort of saying, Jesus, I don't, you know, I don't know how to do this. These guys are like this club of 100 sort of runs a bulk of the world in a lot of ways. And I felt like the Lord said, Foth, he calls me Foth. He, he said, Foth, um, when you speak to the king of the universe in the morning, it's not such a big deal to speak to a United States senator in the afternoon. Mm. <laughs> and that, that piece profoundly uh, helped me. The whole identity piece was a big thing for me. Uh, we were at a big dinner, and um, we didn't have titles, because when you're just a friend, you don't need a card that said friend. You know, you're, just, you're just a friend. And I was sitting at a table, Ruth and I were sitting at a table with the incoming chaplain of the Senate, Senator Lloyd Ogilvie, outgoing chaplain, Dr. Richard Halverson, or excuse me, Dr. Ogilvie, Dr. Halverson, Billy Graham, who was speaking, Senator John Ashcroft of Missouri, who was hosting him, a man high in the economic system of Japan by the name of Koji, myself, Ruth, and the prime minister and his wife from an island nation. I'm talking to the Japanese friend, and pretty soon he hands me his card. And I, you know, I don't have a title, I don't have a staff, I, you know, you're just there hanging, being friends with people, not with, with no agenda except to see, can I help you in some way? And he hands me his card. And those of you who know Asian culture got all of his titles. You know, counsel to this and then all of his titles. And then I hand him my card, and I'm feeling so insecure. I hand him my card that just says Richard Foth, Falls Church, Virginia. And Koji looks at my card and he goes, oh. I said, what's the matter, Koji? Is there a problem? He said, oh, no problem. But in my country, only person who had no title on card is emperor. I said, yes. <laughs> But, but the, the, the principle in, in walking with people in places of responsibility is the higher you go in any area, 
Healthcare, education, church, whatever, the higher you go, the more competitive it gets, the closer you play your cards, and you get to the top of the heap, and you end up with a thousand acquaintances and no friends. Leadership's not hard because you have to make decisions. That's what leaders do. That's what you're built for. Leadership's hard because you don't know who to trust. So in that context, you have to take the long haul. And if you say to a congressman or a general or somebody, you say, I just want to be your friend, they say, yeah, right, sure. And they wait for the other shoe to drop. And after two years, when the other shoe doesn't drop, maybe you can be a friend. But then when they hit the wall, and almost everybody hits the wall at some point, they turn to you because you don't want their signature, you don't need them to speak at anything, don't want their money, don't have to have your picture in the newsletter. That whole thing is profound. And I didn't know any of that. And people uh, showed me. They nurtured and mentored us in that way. And... Um, Anyway, there, there are other people who, who have a, a, a more specific kind of experience, but there are lots and lots of stories. But I, I've been impressed by this. There are numbers of people of faith in the halls of power. You don't always get it from the policy, but people who have hot hearts for Jesus and cool minds. And you don't need 27, you just need two or three together. And if you can help fan that flame... Mm. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. So, so where, you've been, where have you been the last <laughs> We really don't have time for all that. No, we're it's good. Keep going. No, 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 go ahead. No, I, I would love for you to kind of compare and contrast the, the type of people that, that Dick has spent um, pouring his life into in, in some of the dynamics there with the, with the type of people that you've spent the last, uh, the better part of your life pouring into. Yeah, I've, um, I've had the privilege for the last 30-some um, years of working with people who have been uh, without power, yeah. people who have been uh, homeless, people who have run into various problems in life, some of them from great families, some of them from broken families. First uh, in Afghanistan, Sally and I spent three years there, and uh, it was a strange world for me. It was kind of ironical, but God took me, um, raised in a good home, never smoked dope, never got drunk, never done anything, and then put me into the world of young people who were um, suffering from all kinds of life-controlling problems out of pain, and taught me that uh, to be a friend, like I said, to really see people as people and to love them and go on a journey with them. Uh, we now, uh, we did that then from Afghanistan to Amsterdam for 18 years, then we spent a, a stretch in the States and now we're back in uh, South Africa. We feel like this is our final stop on the journey. Geographically, we want to live the rest of our lives there. Uh, so we, we moved there nine years ago, and um, we started off just the two of us. We're part of a larger family or network called All Nations, but we felt like we just wanted to go to get into um, the, the spiritual center of gravity outside of the Western Hemisphere, to get closer to the problems of the world that are non-Western and non-white, and the spiritual strength of people in the non-Western world, if I can say it that way. I have a great sense of respect for what's happening in Africa and Asia and Latin America. I'd been in South America many times, um, South Africa, sorry, and I really wanted to, to go and live there, and I asked Sally to pray about it, and, and um, we, we did, and she did, and she felt okay about that, so we moved there nine years ago. So we just started walking in the streets of some of the poor communities. I was attracted to the University of Cape Town. It's one of the 
top universities in the world, very highly rated. But when I prayed, I felt like the Lord said, no, there are others doing that. I want you to go and walk with the poor. Um, so I started off doing that in, in a township called Masapumalele. Um, it was an informal squatter camp that just grew rapidly because people found a place to live. Uh, there's a huge migration from other African countries to South Africa because it's one of the strongest economies in Africa and because there's lots of jobs. And, but this has created huge problems in the urban areas where you just find tens and hundreds of thousands of people moving. So in Cape Town, a, a city of about four and a half million, we have, um, we have townships that are called, the, the official term is previously disadvantaged communities, but they're still very disadvantaged. So I could drive for 11 kilometers, eight miles, uh, and find a million people living in one-room shacks. That's just one touch of it. And so we started walking in those communities. And uh, actually, I started driving those communities because I was scared to death because the crime is very high. Mm. Um, but it's kind of hard to be able to really connect with people if you're doing drive-by blessings, you know, and you're not getting out of your car. <laughs> so I, um, yeah, I felt risky. I'm a white guy, you know, and I'm tall, <laughs> a big target. So but I got out of the car, started walking, uh, just sitting with people, talking people, hearing their stories, trying to learn, trying to hear um, and connect with people and started sharing Jesus and people started coming to faith and we started faith communities, small, simple ones that weren't about money, weren't about education, weren't about um, a building, weren't about a sound system. It was just about uh, building a spiritual family and giving people some place where they could belong and they could be real. And, you know, if you're poor and you don't have enough money to even buy a Sunday outfit and, um, and you find people accept you and the church becomes family, Africa knows family. Um, they can do institutional church, but there's an attraction to being family. And so that's what we've done. We've just started families, spiritual families, and walked with people through their journeys in life. So... That's been my privilege for the last nine years. And uh, some amazing uh, South African people of all colors, uh, black, white, brown, have uh, taken the leadership in, in our communities and we've sent lots of people out to other countries. One of the things I'm really excited about is the Africans who come to Cape Town because they're desperate uh, for financial resource to help their families back home. And when they come to faith, and they find the skills to be self-sustaining, and then they go back home, and they reproduce that. And they help other people find a purpose in life, be able to sustain themselves economically, and they share Jesus, and to see that take off. Uh, one of the guys in Zimbabwe, uh, we've been walking a journey with since we, just after we came there, has now, uh, he's just turned a whole province in Zimbabwe upside down. There's been somewhere around 600 churches that have started Thousands of homeless people have come to faith. Crime rates have gone down. And the way he started, his name is Munya, the way he started is he thought, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna find 10 people who are gangsters, unemployed, um, struggling with sexual addictions, whatever. So he went and found, he looked for 10 people and this is what he said. He said, um, I'm, I'm gonna start a movement and we're gonna change Zimbabwe. Would you help me? <laughs> And uh, he found 10 guys who, who said, what does that mean? And who connected with him and he shared Jesus and they grew in faith. And now it's taken off and it's exploded. And um, 
You know, I get to be a part of that. I think that's like the greatest privilege in the world. Go ahead, Dick. You know what's interesting is, is that when you do what you do in the spirit of Jesus, when you do that, that's such an attractive place to be when you go without expectation, except from him when you do that. It, and so if you take a U.S. congressman across the Anacostia River to southeast, which would be our Soweto, if you will, in, in that city. Some of the most underserved people in the country live in there. And when you take a crew leader and a congressman and you sit together with them, they're very similar. You say, well, that's what I was thinking. And, but, the, but the point is that they're both leaders. They, they both need trust. They both have constituencies. They both need money. And, and when you bring Jesus into that mix, things happen that would not otherwise happen. And when I listen to when I listen to Floyd, and he's you know he's he's been down in the trenches with just these hard things, and I'm saying, you know, I wish I could, I wish I could be like Floyd, and do that, and and the Lord says, no, I wanted you here to do this over there, and when I look at this time together, and look at the cross section of people that have been up here in all these walks of life, just that kaleidoscope, that beautiful piece. It's such a profound thing. Yeah. Well, we're, we're about through the halfway point of this conference. And so um, I'd, be, I'd be interested to know, has there been like one thing that's just really, you, you've heard here that's just kind of landed with you and that you're going to be thinking about, um, you know, over the next 24 hours and hopefully a lot longer? Is there like one takeaway so far? I don't mean to put you on the, on the spot or anything. Um, I, can, I can just jump in and say... Um, I, I came to receive. Um, I've been reading through the Gospels for the last 10 years, reinforming my heart, reimagining what it is to be in love with Jesus, reimagining, redefining what the good news is of Jesus. And I just wanted to hang out with people who were, that their main agenda, we all have other things that we're doing, projects, programs, church families, ministries, but to be with people that Jesus is at the center of that, um, has been so exciting for me. I, I could go home today and just be so happy. I'm so encouraged. I got to connect with, with Brian and Perry, and I just feel so overwhelmed uh, because I want to finish my life more and more and more in love with Jesus yeah. in, a, in a pure way. I, I want to make sure that Jesus is unshackled and he's not encrusted with all the cultural stuff, the patriotism stuff, the religious stuff. And um, then my desire is to be like, a, I'm, a, I'm a natural grandfather. I want to be a spiritual grandfather. Mm. I want to just champion spiritual sons and daughters and see them do great things, but with, with a real secure identity in Jesus, that they don't have to perform and prove and earn something. They just know. They just do it out of knowing that they're loved. Uh, that's, that's what I want to take away. Yeah. Maybe. I... That's exactly what I was feeling in terms of being fed here. And I, I, wait, I walk away, or could walk away at this moment, with this fresh image of a, of a disorienting, magnetic Jesus. Both those things are going on at the, at the same time uh, in me. And I, you know, I've got less life to live than I have lived. I'm pretty sure. And, <laughs> yeah, and I, that's true. And I feel like that 
Like that old African-American preacher that when asked the question, what do you want in these years of, of your life? He said, as I come into the harbor at the end of my life, I don't want to drown in shallow water. Mm. I want to come in full bore. And that's, that's what this does. Yeah. I just want to say, uh, on behalf of a lot of us in the room, uh, we're really grateful. And we're standing on your shoulders. A lot, of the, a lot of the ground that, that you've toiled is, is stuff that we're able to, to be in. And so uh, we're really, really grateful for, for you. And uh, you've lived it well. And you've set the table really nicely for a lot of us. And so thank you.